Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As many longtime listeners know, each and every show is dedicated to the weekly Torah reading, known in Hebrew as the Parashah, that is read and studied in Jewish communities throughout the week. This week, we conclude the reading of the entire book of Bereshit, Genesis, with the Parashah Vayachi, which begins in Genesis 47, verse 28, and continues through the end of book 50. Let me offer an overview of the Parashah before we spend some time talking about the book of Genesis and the parasha in particular. This parasha begins by telling us that Jacob, the final patriarch, the third patriarch, lives his final 17 years in Egypt. Before his death, he asks Joseph to take an oath that he will bury him in the Holy Land. He blesses Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, elevating them to the status of his own sons as progenitors of tribes within the nation of Israel. The patriarch desires to reveal the end of days to his children, but the text tells us he is unable to do so. And therefore, the majority of the parashah focuses on Jacob blessing his sons. Each son becomes the progenitor of a tribe, and each tribe is assigned a responsibility. A large funeral procession consisting of Jacob's descendants, Pharaoh's ministers, the leading citizens of Egypt, and the Egyptian cavalry accompanies Jacob on his final journey to the Holy Land, where he is buried in the cave of Machpelah, just as his ancestors were in what is now known as Hebron. Joseph, too, dies in Egypt, and the text tells us he's 110 years old. He, too, instructs that his bones be taken out of Egypt and buried in the Holy Land. But this is not able to take place immediately and would come to pass only with the Israelites' exodus from Egypt many years later. In fact, that is how the book of Exodus will describe the exodus uh, after the first Passover. Before his passing, Joseph conveys to the children of Israel the testament from which they will draw their hope and faith in difficult years to come. He says to them, God will surely remember you and bring you up out of this land to the land which he swore to his, and his promised three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the book of Genesis ends, and with me this morning— 
to discuss the first book of the Hebrew Torah is Rabbi Joshua Goldstein, Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Shari Shalom. He retired in 2012. He is an ardent Zionist. He has worked diligently in interfaith work in both New Jersey and elsewhere. A selection of Rabbi Goldstein's articles and sermons was published in 2007 under the title Standing on the Shoulders. And in 2012, just before his retirement, a subsequent volume of his writing was compiled entitled Jewish Passions, Realities, and Visions. So, Rabbi Goldstein, it's a pleasure to invite you and welcome you to Jewish Faith and Facts. Thank you, Rabbi Garten, uh, and, and hello to every to our audience. I think this is the second time that I've been privileged to be with uh, my old dear friend, Rabbi Steve Garden, on this program. It's a pleasure. I, it's, I'm so honored that you asked me. And, um, and, and specifically to talk about this Torah portion, which the last one, as Rabbi Garten said, in the book of Genesis, and to maybe begin by offering an overview of Genesis itself, as long as we're about to leave Genesis after this coming Shabbat, this coming Sabbath, um, maybe it's a good opportunity to think back and reflect a little bit on the significance of the book of Genesis. A great idea before we enter into the story of Moses and the beginning of the 40-year journey in the wilderness. So, Rabbi Goldstein, as the year 2020 ends and newspapers and TV and magazines are filled with the best hits, whether they're musical, movies, books, or television, why don't we begin by discussing the top five hits, the top five episodes, as you think of it, of the book of Genesis? That that would be my pleasure. That was my homework that Rabbi Garten gave me about two or three days ago. Um, and, uh, And I did look over the book of Genesis, Bereshit in Hebrew, and thought about not just the top five, but maybe even the top 10, but I'm going to limit myself. So, you know, different people can read Genesis in different ways. It is, to my way of thinking, a, a book that is appealing to all people, not simply the Jewish people, but to all people, because it talks about the human condition. Um, it talks about consequences for behavior. We see, you know, Cain murdering his brother Abel, and and what the, the, the consequence of that is that um, he is banished, and, um, and, and God reveals that there are consequences for, for, for our behavior. Genesis also talks about other things within the human condition, sibling rivalry, uh, finding the right priorities, numerous other things that are important for all people to recognize. But, okay, so... Top three, four hits, I would say. Um, I've always liked, uh, more than liked, you know, to use that word liked, it's like, eh, it's okay. No, it's, it, it, this is the, a part of, this is the book that's been with me since I was a child, as it is for most Jews and most Christians as well. So the story of the Tower of Babel, 
always appeals to me, maybe because it's so brief. We're talking about Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Um, and, and what gets to me about that story is, number one, the unabashed recognition of why are these people building a tower to begin with? And the answer is we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to become famous. We want to feed our egos. Um, and, and there's a great midrash, a great legend with this that says that these people were so, uh, so focused on building the tower that their priorities got mixed up. You know, when a brick from the tower fell, everybody went into mourning and cried. When a human being who was helped, who was building the tower fell and died, nobody seemed to care much. So, I think one of the reasons I would pick this story is because it tells us to get our priorities right, not to not to focus so much on um, the, the ends, but maybe the means a little bit more. So that's one Tower of Babel. I've always liked, of course, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, not because of the uh, um, uh, the uh, sense of Sodom and Gomorrah as places of great sin, but because that's where Abraham and God get into a strong dialogue. And Abraham is sort of negotiating with God. What if there are just 50 people there? Would you still destroy the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? What if there are 30 people? And bargains God down. All this says to, to me and to generations of, our, of readers is that the God of Genesis is a God that is approachable, that you can argue with. That you can even debate with, you can even criticize this God. Will not the judge of all the earth do justly? Abraham angrily rebukes God with those words. So from there, I think the, the, the Jewish sense of God is of an approachable God that one can argue with, one can debate with, and that's what I get out of mostly out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then, of course, how could we not focus on? Genesis 22, 1 to 19, that's Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac. Every time I read that on Rosh Hashanah in front of a huge group of people, you know, I cringe a little bit because it is talking about child sacrifice, the kind of stuff that we don't want to talk about. But I think what stands out for me is that maybe this is really not a trial, a test of Abraham. Maybe it's a test of God. Um, to see if, if God is really going to go through with what he's requiring Abraham to do. And, of course, uh, the angel of God or God stops um, the sacrifice from taking place. But the point, the story is so poignant. I'll always remember in my synagogue when somebody would read this story and come to the words where the angel of God stops Abraham and would almost shout out the words, Abraham, 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 Abraham. Um, there's there's a lot of emotion in that story. Obviously, we're talking about the uh, child sacrifice first of all. But but the reason I think that many Jews find this story important is because it speaks to our priorities. It speaks to what is most precious to us, and having to make that sacrifice, um, if if indeed that's called for. So Akedat Yitzchak, and I guess the last two Rabbi Garden would be uh, from Genesis 32. And then even Genesis, um, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis uh, 28 and then Genesis 32. Here I'm talking about Jacob's dreams. So Jacob in exile from his brother Esau and feeling isolated and alone, puts his head down on a rock and has a dream of a stairway to heaven. 
and uh, and realizes that the dream reveals is is a revelation of God to him. And Jacob's response is kind of like a childlike response. If you protect me, if you keep me secure, if you give me clothing to wear, then I'll believe in you. It's a conditional kind of faith. But the next dream, Genesis 32, Jacob's second dream, taking place when he's about to reconcile with his brother Esau, he wrestles with a being, an angel. And from that wrestling, he emerges limping, but he also emerges recognizing that his, I think his former faith in God had been somewhat of a childlike faith. And this one now was an, an unconditional faith. So, um, you know, I guess the lesson of that is that the human condition, specifically the Jewish condition, is one of struggle. We wrestle. We emerge limping sometimes. Life is often a struggle. And the struggle should be seen as, as something good, actually. To go through life without struggles is um, maybe to, to miss out on some of the things in life. It's interesting, Rabbi, that you chose all five episodes yeah. are about struggle and conflict yeah. and the need for human beings to make choices. Sometimes they make good choices. Sometimes they make poor choices. Uh, and in these episodes of Genesis, the choices can have uh, interesting consequences. In the case of uh, Cain and Abel, of course, um, we are introduced to the notion of natural law, that Cain keep, kills Abel, and God assumes in the text that he knows that this is wrong, even though there has been no introduction of law. Uh, to prohibit it. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, there too, evil finds its way into the story. And Abraham really says to God, are human beings not created by you with some sort of uh, innate sense of what's right and wrong? And when we get to Jacob and his dreams and Abraham and the sacrifice of his son, there too, each of the episodes is about human beings making choices and the relationship with God and how it impacts on those choices. Uh, a fascinating selection. Yeah. I'm sure that listeners and others might have chosen a different set of five. Um, they might have thought that the first 29 verses of the first chapter about the creation was most significant. Uh, and they might have thought that the selection of Abraham as the first person identified as having a covenant with God but you've really uh, spoken about the partnership between God and humanity as expressed through Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And so you've spoken about not just the uh, particularistic covenant of the Jewish people with Adonai, 
but the human covenant between Adonai and all of humanity. Um, an interesting selection. So I want to thank you, Rabbi Goldstein. And with that introduction and for that food for thought for our listeners, perhaps we can now conclude the story of Genesis with Vayachi. And for our listeners who uh, are not uh, conversant with Hebrew, Vayachi Yaakov Be'eretz Mitzrayim. And Jacob lived 17 years in the land of Egypt. And so that span of Jacob's life came to 147 years. And I know that you wanted to begin with a conversation about uh, the beginning of this Torah portion and lead us into some of the really essential lessons as Genesis concludes. So where would you like us to turn to our attention first? Yeah, uh, Rabbi Garden, as you know, this is such a rich material for discussion. It's like trying to pick the top five of Genesis. It's, it's hard to do that. And, um, and I could have you know, chosen a lot more, but this particular Torah portion, Vayechi, is the last one of Genesis. We're talking about Genesis 47, verse 28 to 50, verse 26. Um, it talks on a number of different things, but you know what? I'll take that first sentence uh, anytime. Uh, Jacob, the, the last of the patriarchs, lived the last 17 years of his life in Egypt and a total of 147 years, mentioned kind of casually. 147 years? Wow. Now, uh, you know, many of us don't take it so literally, but uh, this is the transition Torah portion between Genesis and Exodus. So we're transitioning from the death of Jacob and then later on in the in the portion, the death of Joseph to um, the beginning of Exodus, where it tells us that, the, that our people lived for 430 years under slavery in Egypt. So it's the transition of, of Genesis to Exodus here. Um, well, it's also the end of uh, the patriarchal line. Yeah. Uh, Jacob being the last of the patriarchs, um, at the conclusion of this parasha, we're now going to be speaking uh, about the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. We're going to be speaking more corporately, and our stories are going to be more corporate than simply familial stories. We're not as interested in the personal lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their marital difficulties, but uh, and the relationship, as you begun to express it, will be between uh, God, the God who first spoke to Abraham, and to the corporate body of Israel. Yeah, absolutely. We are now, even towards the uh, middle of Genesis and beyond, the, the emphasis shifts more towards a particularistic view, specifically the Jewish people, although, again, it's very, very applicable for all people. Um, this portion, though, uh, talks about two or three different things involved in that transition, which I find very compelling. First of all, um, what, what, Jacob's final wish that he expresses 
uh, this is from Genesis chapter 47, verse 30, is where and how he wants to be buried. A lot of us, you know, when we try to apply that to our own lives, really don't want to talk about it. It's the last thing in the world we want to focus on. But Jacob's wish is to be buried within his own homeland in Israel. Now, when you think about that, um, so he'd been living for 17 years in Egypt was probably getting acclimated to it, but he knows deep down that he needs to be buried in Israel when our people leave. This is a great statement of faith. The Jewish people at that point were so small and so fragile, but Jacob says, I have faith in our future. I know that eventually we're going to be going back to the land of Israel and I want to be buried there. So number one, how and 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 we want to be buried is probably something that comes to our minds when we read this, but also the the great Jewish love for Israel early on expressed by Jacob's wish to be buried there. And then we come and, to- and this is long before they leave Egypt on the path to the promised land. Yeah. It's uh, uh, a statement of the uh, commitment of the Jewish people in exile in Galut, uh, the affinity they have for the land. Um, and interestingly enough, in the Torah portion, of course, it's accepted as a normative uh, request. Right. right. Even by the Egyptians, who, uh, as the text tells us, accompanied uh, Jacob um, and his sons and family from Egypt all the way to Hebron. Uh, I guess there was a uh, nonstop bus or train uh, (laughs) that made the journey somewhat easy or it was hyperbole. But either way, uh, we see, you're absolutely correct, Rabbi Goldstein, that this speaks to the nature of the eternal connection between the Jewish people and the land of Israel. Yeah. Um, so absolutely, I think it does. And, and, um, you know, and that always reinforces my sense of my own love for Israel. Then beyond that, Rabbi Garden, the portion goes into a a series of, of verses that focus on blessings, specifically deathbed blessings. Now, again, not a subject that everybody wants to focus on in their own lives, maybe hard to do, but the Torah liberates us enough when we read it to be able to say, let's start thinking about this. What, what are the last things? What are the last, what's my last legacy that I want to leave for those that I love the most? So in Jacob's case, um, he, he asks for two of his grandchildren, as you mentioned before, Rabbi, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh to be brought before him. And Jacob says this amazing sentence. He says, I never expected to see you again, Joseph, my son. And now God has let me see my grandchildren as well. I'm always struck by that because it's such a beautiful way to, to, to express what's one of your last thoughts in life. That there's wonder in life on the lips of a of a person who is dying. I never expected to see you, my son. I thought you were gonna you were you're gonna be dead. And now I I see my grandchildren. So that's the blessing to his grandchildren, one of wonder, I guess. And then a couple of uh, a chapter on Genesis 49. Now Jacob turns his attention to blessings to his own sons. 
And as opposed to just an expression of wonder that comes, came with that first blessing, now these blessings to his sons are uh, a combination of uh, prayer, uh, psychological assessment of the strengths and flaws of his children, parables, hopes, uh, recollections. Often this is incoherent to to the uh, first time reader or even the reader has been over this many times. But what sticks with me is that it is still a blessing. Maybe not quite as coherent, maybe a little bit too candid, but still conveys the notion that I want to leave my children with a blessing before I die. And um, what generations of our people have always learned is blessings are so significant. I'll always think as a child on Friday nights, on, on the eve of Shabbat, how my dad would ask me and my sister and my brother to come up to him one at a time and put his hands on our heads and say, may God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you. May God's, may God's face be lifted to you. May you know peace. Now, that blessing always made me feel so, so warm and good. And, and I'm mentioning it now because I think sometimes it's a lost art. And so I, want I want to remind the listeners that, that uh, uh, what Rabbi Goldstein is speaking of is that it's not unusual in Jewish homes on Erev Shabbat on Friday night for parents, uh, traditionally it was just the father, but perhaps now both parents to bless their children. They begin with the priestly blessing, which is well known in many Jewish homes and even in Christian tradition, as Rabbi Goldstein mentioned. But interestingly enough, for our purposes, the Friday night blessing also concludes with, and may you be like Manasseh and Ephraim, right? Uh, Joseph's sons. And I want to use your memory there, your childhood memory, to ask you, uh, Rabbi Goldstein, how you understand Jacob, including his grandchildren, who don't have Hebrew names, uh, certainly didn't have a uh, Hebrew mother, um, and yet Jacob includes them as if they were simply part of the family. Yeah, so he, how, do you, how do you understand that? Because on the surface of it, it seems like he's uh, um, negating uh, his own natural-born children. Yeah, um, you know, you know what? I have to admit something to you, Rabbi. I never really thought too hard about that until now. Why is it that Jacob seems to be so inclusive with his blessings towards his own grandchildren, when indeed they really have negligible links to to the tradition that that Jacob was beginning? Am I understanding you correctly there, Rabbi? Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I'm fascinated by it because yeah. this is the Jacob who, as we know, uh, blessings are an essential part of his childhood. Yeah. Uh, he and his brother Esau uh, have switched blessings, and Esau sells his birthright, which is another way of speaking for blessing. And so uh, at the conclusion of his life, the man who has 
<coughs> struggled with the meaning of blessing seems very interested in being all conclusive about who gets a blessing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it could be, to me, right off the top of my head, it can be read in two ways. Number one, it's a, uh, a, a lesson for future generations to be inclusive and not to and not to leave people out in, in, uh, out of our circle because they may not have had the same kind of traditional uh, upbringing, perhaps, that, that we've had. And that's a modern and contemporary application that is very fitting for our times. We want to be as inclusive as possible in a day and age when so many Jewish people in particular don't come from the same backgrounds that we all seem to come from 100, 150 years ago. So that's number one, that Jacob is really showing us the way to be inclusive. Number two, maybe Jacob is also showing confidence that the story of our people, as brief as it had been up to then, was still a very compelling story. And once his grandchildren had a chance to know that story, Jacob um, was, was uh, confident that they, would have want, that they would want to make that story their own. So you can- I am going to have to leave it at that, Rabbi yeah. Goldstein. Uh, this has been an enlightening conversation, I hope, for our listeners as well. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, thanking my guest, Rabbi Joshua Goldstein of New Jersey, and wishing my listeners a uh, good day and a happy new year. You can hear a podcast of this on iTunes or on the CHRI website.